The following podcast is a Dear Media production. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. How common are autoimmune diseases? Well, today you're going to be hearing from two people who live with autoimmune diseases. So that's two out of two people on today's episode of Looking Up, myself and my guest, Phoebe Lapine. Overall, autoimmune diseases are common, affecting more than 23 and a half million Americans. Some autoimmune diseases are rare, while others, such as Hashimoto's disease, affect many, many people. After Phoebe was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease in her early 20s, she felt overwhelmed by her doctor's strict protocols and was so confused with all the other stuff she was exposed to in popular books and online. So she started experimenting on her own and came up with her very own protocols. From diet to skincare products and getting in touch with her spiritual side, she became a self-taught cook who creates healthy takes on comfort food. She's a food and health writer, Hashimoto's and SIBO advocate. Between her debut memoir, The Wellness Project, and her award-winning blog, Feed Me Phoebe, She has given thousands of people the tools to eat better and to live better. Her newest book is out now, SIBO Made Simple. And if you don't know what SIBO is, well, you are about to. So the way that we start looking up is with a little section that I like to call looking in. Is there a book or a quote or a piece of advice that um, you have read or heard that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? Yes. So, I mean, there are a lot of books. I love books, but I'd have to say the number one is The Happiness Project by Gretchen Rubin. Ironically, it affected my life before I'd even read it, just like by the concept of what she did. It was like came to me at a time when I was really struggling with my health. And I actually used it as kind of like a model for my own project around my health, not necessarily happiness, but just in kind of structuring things like one month at a time in a slightly more type A way. And, you know, letting the year be kind of like the sum of all its parts rather than trying to struggle with a to-do list all at once in January, as most people do. Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay, people think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. Okay, people think I'm very outgoing and make friends easily, but I'm actually painfully shy and have a lot of social anxiety. Mm. Use three words to describe yourself as a teenager in the high school years. Oh my God. I feel like everyone probably has the same ones, but um, (laughs) okay. I'll try and be a little bit different. So weird, insecure, and creative. I like those. When is the last time that you cried? I usually cry every day and especially in 2020, definitely cried every day. Um, But weirdly, I had therapy yesterday and I remembered noting to myself that it was like a rare session that I didn't cry, but I know for sure I cried two days ago on Monday. (laughs) It's good to let it out. Oh yeah. I was interviewing a guest and he's this amazing guy, one of the most interesting people that I've personally interviewed. And he does a lot of work with performance anxiety and getting like the the best of the best, the elite athletes and musicians like mm. ready for performing and for going through all sorts of things. But he he's kind of like this guy that has a ton of lives and has done a ton of stuff. And I remember that he did a lot of training, crisis intervention training after 9-11 
um, in New York. And wow. one of the things that he did was he prescribed people to cry. And I thought mm-hmm. that was just so powerful and so interesting, especially from a um, professional standpoint and personal. Like it's actually one of our tools and resources is yeah. to cry and sort of let that out. And so I think that it's pretty common. Most of the people that I do interview, they do cry every day in different Mm -hmm. ways, sometimes out of happiness, sometimes out of anger, sometimes out of sadness. You know, it's interesting to know it's a response. Okay. Without too much thought or judgment, three things that have brought you happiness today. Okay. It's a weird day, but... I would say, you know, my book's coming out in less than a week and it's been a true joy to see people who have received early copies, um, like having it in their home and sharing with them and a few, you know, close friends of mine who've given me some positive feedback. So one would have to be like a really wonderful voice memo I got from a friend about it today. I have to say, I wake up with gratitude kind of like my husband every morning. We're like great British Bake Off fans. And I like said to him this morning, I was like, can you just be like the rough puff to my like (laughs) sausage roll? And we just had a nice cuddle session. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cute. The power of a cuddle session. Seriously. Yeah, seriously. And then I had some delicious leftovers for lunch that I'd made in a virtual cooking class last night, which was really fun. So yeah, it was nice to like be able to enjoy the fruits of my labor as I often do in the form of leftovers. <laughs> I love that. I love that we're already talking about food, which is what we're here to talk about. <laughs> um, I guess like my first sort of thought is or question for you is, how did your cooking journey start and sort of what have been some important moments um, in your life leading up to it that have brought you to that point? Um, Were you always interested in cooking? Was that sort of your trajectory or did cooking find you? I mean, it found me at a very early age, just like a lot of people. I had a mother who was an incredible cook and like really got me involved in the kitchen and maybe not perhaps like in the most active ways. She gave me all the menial tasks, like deleafing the herbs and, you know, stirring the dough and things like that. But weirdly, I think, you know, I grew up in kind of the golden age of the Food Network. I think we're around the same age. And, you know, so it was like the early stages when food TV was just beginning. And I swear, I mean, I really learned how to cook by like watching those shows. And on weekends, I would just sit there and for like seven hours straight, just watch all the shows. Um, So that was formative in its way. And then I kind of just loved the way that food would bring people together. I think it was kind of like the social aspect that really like solidified my love. And, you know, my friends in, in high school and I would have these potluck parties. And in college, I was like always the person in the ramshackle kitchen, like trying to make a fancy meal for people. And then after college, I really struggled with kind of the absence of having like a dining hall or a means to gather around the table. So I kind of, again, in my first like ramshackle apartment was trying to like squeeze large like swaths of people people in there, like it was still college, like 20 people over, like for like a giant pot of chili, like being served out of like, I don't know, crack dishes and like sad little paper bowls. And that was actually, you know, I started a food blog kind of off the back 
of that experience because being like a devotee of the Food Network, I didn't really like know any shows that kind of, or people or cookbooks who really like combined all of the contingencies that I was facing. I was like, I don't just need the 30 minute meals or like the dirt cheap meals. I need like the 30 minute meals that are also dirt cheap that also can be made in a small apartment kitchen that could also be made with no time because I'm working, you know, my first job and have no salary and yada, yada, yada. And like can feed 30 people that I invited over, you know, with 10 minutes notice. So that kind of became the basis for my first food blog, which I had while I was working in the corporate world in in big beauty. And this is like way before blogging was like Oh yeah. A very big thing. And what was it no, called? It was 2008. Um, big Girls Small Kitchen. Ooh, so I, I wrote that. it with my best friend from high school. Yeah. And then we got, you know, because I think it was the, the golden age of blogging, we, you know, our message took off since it was so niche. We got a cookbook deal really early on, really easily. And so I published my first cookbook and 2011 and kind of quit my corporate job to do it full time and started private chefing and catering to make ends meet. But then ironically, like that was like chapter one, which like most people who currently follow me don't even know about. And then chapter two is I was diagnosed with this autoimmune disease and started to see like some holistic practitioners after like truly working my way to rock bottom. Um, I was just, I had lost so much weight. My hair was falling out. My skin was a mess. I like couldn't eat anything without being, you know, curled over in the fetal position, which was Mm. definitely an occupational hazard. Mm. And so I finally, you know, saw someone who was going to teach me about food as medicine. And ironically, it was like right before the book came out and I ended up like not being able to eat half the recipes in it. So going out on this book tour and just like sadly, like making chocolate chip cookies for like huge parties since we were also doing it on the cheap and yeah, just like not even being able to lick the spatula. So it should have, that should have been, you know, kind of really my next chapter, but it did take a long time for me to kind of, for those two stories, like the health story and the food story to dovetail. And I think I had to really like wear myself down to a point of complete overwhelm. Like, I mean, I started off with a doctor who was just like, just take this thyroid medication. You'll have to be on it for the rest of your life. And that's no big deal. And I was like, no. (laughs) And then, you know, flipping to the other side of the coin, like, the kind of pendulum of like holistic obsession where, you know, doctors were telling me I'd like throw out the entire ingredients of like my house and replace everything with unbleached cotton and like baking soda. And as a 20 something with again, like still kind of living in a small studio apartment and with not a ton of time and money, I was just like, how do people like be well in this world? Like this can't be necessary. This can't be it. It's causing so much more anxiety to try and like be perfect. And as someone that it sounds like really equates a lot of joy with cooking and eating and serving others and bringing people around a table, that must've been, I, I relate to that in some ways as well too. I also have an autoimmune disease and I also have the same story where it was like, it kind of started with well, you just have to take this medicine for the rest of your yeah. life and push back on that. And what's this world of holistic medicine? And, and what are these alternative things I can do? And you can really get lost in that world yeah. really quick. And part of it can feel so overwhelming that it actually, for me at least, paralyzed me in the sense where I was like, yeah. I can't do any of this. Um, I think I'll just take the medicine. And it takes a while to find that like I don't even like to say balance because it's a word that I've actually talked a lot about um, over the last couple of years that I think is a pretty 
loaded word that yeah. oftentimes comes with a lot of pressure. Um, yeah, and, and shame. It's sort of, yeah, and shame <laughs> and this unattainable or impossible notion. And so, you know, I really learned that like every day is sort of different and to really yeah. start listening to my body and also this idea that like there is no such thing as perfection. But I really yeah. want to hear from you how you blended together all of that. And I, I mean, I'm sitting right in front of your new your new cookbook right now, SIBO Made Simple. And I know a lot of people don't even know what SIBO is. And by the way, I was totally diagnosed earlier, like many, many years ago with it. And I actually really? have done, oh I've gosh. actually done nothing about it. I have never, like, I was kind of like, oh, just that piled on with my autoimmune disease. I have an inflammatory autoimmune condition. And they were like, oh, and let's just check this. And you also have something called SIBO. And they said, like, I think it's treated by antibiotics, which I like also, if you take antibiotics, that's kind of tough for your autoimmune thing. So I just have never done anything with it. (laughs) And it's a risk factor for SIBO. It's all a vicious cycle. (laughs) Right. So I'm excited. And I think less about the like, really intricacies about SIBO, but more about the fact that I'm looking at this cookbook, which sounds like you really did figure out a way to culminate all of that, all the chapters of your stories. And it sounds like the chapter you're in right now, I'm looking at right now. And it is that culmination of being able to provide that joy for yourself and others and still pivot and evolve and develop a book that actually resonates with you. That's something you're proud of and brings you joy and all these great recipes, but also still something that sounds like it fits within sort of the dietary nutritional framework that you are advocating yourself for because of of your own autoimmunity condition. Yeah. Well, I love that you put it, you know, the paralysis you felt because that was exactly what I felt. It was paralysis. And that was when ironically the happiness project found me, like a friend kind of suggested, I'm like, she was like, why don't you just like do something like the happiness project, but for your health. And that really spoke to me. And I kind of did the framework a little bit differently, but it really was to like find that elusive balance, but without, you know, all the pressure attached, I kind of like created my own little definition, which is something I call healthy hedonism, which is again, like joining like the chef side of myself and, you know, the side of myself that just knew I had to start paying attention to my body. But I kind of define it as like, you know, the Venn diagram where the things that nourish your body meet the things that feed your spirit. And the Mm. things that feed your spirit, you know, could be anything. It could be a French fry. It could be, you know, walking outside for 10 minutes. It could be like having, you know, a night out with friends. It could be anything. And I do think that you kind of have to go through kind of this macro experiment of defining those things for yourself. But then every single day you have to wake up and you have to decide what that balance is. And Mm. luckily, like, you know, the laundry list of things that the wellness blogosphere (laughs) tells us we need to do in in order to be healthy is so incredibly long. It's impossible for us to do all of the above all at once. But I do think that because it's so long, it really is possible to find the handful of things like your own toolkit that that works for you. Yeah. That either A, has a huge physical impact to to the point where that it's worth it, or B, like you can find some genuine joy in it. Like it's like exercise. I mean, there's so many types of exercise. There's some that are going to feel like a nightmare and hopefully there are few that like really, you know, will fit with your, your own sensibility. So what is in your handful toolbox? What have you found in that whole barrage of everything that is sort of thrown at us and you that is like, you should do this, you should do that. You should, you know, what has worked for you over the years and, and what's sort of your handful 
Yeah. So like, I kind of have a few rules of thumb that like eliminate the mental monkeying around being healthy. And like the one is wherever possible, I try and set myself up for success at home. And so, you know, for us with autoimmune diseases, a lot of it comes down to our like quote unquote toxic burden. And like, we live in a world that is just like very, very hard to avoid unwanted chemicals and whatnot, but, you know, really simple things that do take some upfront investment, but then I don't have to think about them ever again was like, I just switched all my personal care products to naturals, which was very hard and took a long time. I worked in big beauty. I had like probably 500 bottles of this and that in my cabinet at one time. I'm sure they were all like expired. But it was just, you know, it was a process and not an easy one. So I understand that that's not necessarily an easy suggestion for everyone. But now that I've done it, and also now that like the naturals world has evolved to have so many incredible options, I just don't have to think about it again. And the second thing would be, and I think it's something that people forget a lot about, is water. So just installing a really good water filter on my tap, I never have to think about that again. And there's such a correlation between a lot of the chemicals that are in our water, like chlorine and fluoride and thyroid dysfunction. Mm -hmm. So to me, just like knowing that that's off my plate again, that I don't ever have to think about it again. Because unfortunately, a lot of these things are just like insidious and silent. And, Mm -hmm. you know, those two things, it's not like I woke up the next day after doing them and was like, oh my God, like I'm healed. My thyroid is just like chugging on all cylinders, but it does add up over time. And that was kind of the beauty of just really like taking a year to kind of slowly figure out my to-do list and to tick things off is that by the end, like I really did see a difference Mm. in terms of like both the physical barometers and my actual blood work and just in like my general outlook and ability to like live a happy life while being quote unquote healthy. And I also think it's important, you know, when you find something that works for you and it's something that you can do and it's doable and you do it every day and you do start seeing the effects, there's also this huge benefit of self-mastery where you feel like it's the opposite of helplessness and the opposite of paralysis. It's actually you taking action and every day doing something that is in line with your goals and your values, your health, your joy, your happiness. And that in itself you guys, is a happiness tool (laughs) is to actually like commit to do something, check it off, take the action and create this sense of self-mastery where you can be prideful and proud of yourself. Yeah. And like the whole SIBO thing, I mean, that came up, I think like six months after my book, The Wellness Project came out. And, you know, it could have been a real, like it was, it was a setback for sure. But I have to say, like having done the exercise of the wellness project, I was so much better equipped to deal with it. And really a lot of the like big things that I learned along the way, like those things that I put in my toolkit and I can keep taking off a few more of them, but those all came into play when I had to deal with SIBO, like besides the antibiotics, besides the dietary changes, like just the more and more I learned about it and the way our guts, you know, are so so interconnected with every other part of the body, like just every single lifestyle issue that I tackled, be it sleep or, you know, again, like the chemicals in our products or finding ways to de-stress, it all came into play. So for some people that don't know, can you tell us what the wellness project is? Yes. So that was my quote unquote year of health. I basically took, you know, all of my wellness problem areas, like 360 and distilled them into like these monthly uh, challenges. And I tried to not make it gimmicky, like 
no offense to Gretchen Rubin, she was a huge influence on me, but like, I didn't want it to be just like this to-do list. Like I just Mm -hmm. gave myself like, it was really to make myself better at the end of the day. And then I wanted to write about it because I knew how I, out of the woodwork, I had a lot of people who followed me who also had Hashimoto's and thyroid issues. So I started off with the liver and did what I call the vice detox. So I took out caffeine, alcohol, and sugar for a month. And like for me in my 20s, that was a really big deal. And it had like, again, like talk about like what has a big physical impact. My skin was like night and day. I had this horrible rash around my nose and mouth called perioral dermatitis. And that was one of my big impetuses for like trying to take my health seriously at a certain point because it was just... Ugh, vanity, I think, is a very powerful motivator, and there's nothing wrong with that. And for me, it certainly was. Um, so I had had this rash, like recurrent, basically for a decade, mm. and like eventually it was just not going away at all. And I tell you, three weeks into the vice detox, it started to fade. By the end of it, it was gone, and it's never come back. Wow. So are you? St- is that something for you when you did the vice detox for a month? Did that tell you sort of like okay? I can do this for a month. Uh, I'm going to keep doing this now for as long as I want, or I'm going to go back and forth and kind of take this detox. And so like, what did you go back to drinking caffeine and alcohol? And I did, you did to some sugar? extent, like, I think you have to kind of experience the extreme sometimes to like find moderation, balance, mm-hmm. healthy hedonism, whatever you want to call it. And like, no, it, the idea was never for any of these things to be cumulative per se, but Yes, that was definitely like an extreme that I wanted to experience. And it did tell, teach me a lot. Like I learned so much about just my emotional attachment to each of those prongs. And the alcohol was weirdly the easiest, mm-hmm. which I would have never expected. I would have thought that would have been the hardest like at that point in my life. Sugar is so difficult because it's just in everything. It's everywhere, it's right. pervasive. And you have to think about it three meals a day and all the snacks in between. And it's in all your snacks, just FYI. Um, <laughs> if you buy it at the store, it's in it. And then the caffeine, I, you know, was actually like the least, the withdrawal that was like less, I could tell it just wasn't the caffeine, like the withdrawal was the sugar, but yeah, I miss the caffeine the least. And so I still don't really drink coffee that much anymore. I'm mostly at the moment, pretty caffeine free, but I'll have green tea every now and Mm -hmm. then. But again, it's just like, you know what? It didn't make that much of a difference to me. I didn't feel like the emotional attachment as much as I did to the others. Do you find that now you found sort of the moderation in which you can have, like you can have some sugar and some alcohol and you know your limits or is it something again that you just sort of will organically eat and drink and then go through another like detox period? Yeah, I think it's somewhere a little bit in between. I mean, we all fall off the wagon and let our habits just kind of spiral out of control sometimes. Like I know I did in March of 2020. I'm sure a lot of other people did. And, you know, that's totally fine. I think the the important thing is not to beat yourself up for any of it. And like you said, just always knowing that tomorrow is a new day. Yes. And it honestly doesn't take that long for your body to get back on track. Like a month without those things seemed like such a long time to me before I did it. And now I realize that even just a week without all three of those things like can set me back up so quickly and easily. And it's amazing. And then, yeah, kind of for me, I've tried, you know, off the back, I'm, I'm doing a dry January right now with my husband. But, you know, I think, again, it's like sometimes you do need the hard reset. And then after that, and after certain periods of this year, that this past year that were 
more bingey, I would just like say like, all right, like we're not drinking during the week for the next few weeks and that's fine. You find it that it's easier to do it with someone. Um, well, no, actually the wellness project, since it's a memoir has a lot to do with like, how do you create these boundaries when you're in a new relationship? Cause I had just met my husband and like, was really struggling with like the idea of being the cool girl. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's so laughable to me at this stage in my life, especially like being married. We've like been through like a shared parasite and like so many things that like you know, we're like one step away from pooping in front of each other, which I hope we never do. But, you know, it's like, there's a a huge comfort level that just really wasn't there at the beginning. (laughs) Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I gave you my, my words insecure for sure in my teens and twenties for the most part. And yeah, I just so feared what my friends would say who, you know, I told I wasn't drinking around them or eating these things or what have you. And, you know, this partner who I thought, you know, saw me as just this really like free spirit, fun, outgoing person went inside, you know, so just complicated women like the rest of us. (laughs) I can totally relate. When I first started dating Alex, my husband, who, by the way, random fact for everyone out there, Phoebe went to college with Alex. And I'm actually wondering now, I'm like, did Alex get to go to one of your big dinners in a small apartment? I'm sure. Like, you know, I can't even, it's like, it's all a blur, but I'm sure. Absolutely. I'm sure he's tasted your delicious food. Um, Yes. I had the same thing. It was like, I was just newly diagnosed and I was kind of in a little bit of a better place. I was in that place where I was like exploring and I was like, okay, I'm going to start to commit to, you know, and there's tons of things out there that are like, if you do this very strict diet, you can control, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I honestly feel that each of us are, are so different and the needs for us are so different. It's kind of what you said in the beginning. If you go on that extreme, sometimes maybe, maybe there's a scientific, you know, proven study that shows that if you follow this diet to a T, it might eliminate X, Y, and Z, but the mental issues that exacerbate your autoimmune condition by not experiencing joy or by being pressured or too compound to being perfect in it actually are worse and make you worse. And so I was in that same thing where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm just meeting this guy and we're going to go on a date. And I'm like, well, I don't eat this and I don't eat that. Yeah. And I was on a really like trying to do this like really hardcore anti-inflammatory diet. I forgot what it was called, but it was some kind of like something, something carbohydrate diet or something. Yeah. The specific yes. carbohydrate oh my God. diet. I personally couldn't do it. I um, I actually relate like so much of my joy and happiness from being able to try all sorts of different types of food. And yeah. I'm a carb lover. It just Me is, too. it is what it is. And I've tried many times. I was gluten-free, sort of no nightshades, no sugar, no refined sugar, all these things for nine, for about eight or nine years. And then I got pregnant wow. with my first child and Alex always laughs at me, but I I had something called hyperemesis gravidarum as well. And it's when you're so sick, I threw up about on average 30 times a day from the day I found out I was pregnant until my son came earthside. And the only thing that I could eat, and I was in the health and wellness space, and the only thing I could eat were egg McMuffin egg McMuffin sandwiches from McDonald's. And I would send Alex like to go get multiples at a time. And it was the only thing I I could hold down. And I was like, you know what? It was a real humbling experience for me where it's also this idea that you can change and you can go through different aspects of your life and need different things. I know people that are hardcore 
vegans and they talk about it and they and they blog about it and they write about it and they're sort of experts in that field or the voice of veganism and sometimes they just need me and they live yeah. in this world where it's 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 awful and it feels imprisoning where you have to hide it or you feel like you can't like you're going to be shamed about it and so i think just any i mean it's that whole old saying that really rings true all the time but like moderation really is key and too much of yeah. one thing is not great for us and so I think just being open and and it's the whole, it, it comes back to literally optimism and resiliency, but it's this idea that nothing's permanent and Absolutely. everything's temporary. And sometimes the things that work for you and they've worked for you for a couple of years or even emotionally, the tools that we have that have worked for us for X amount of years, they're just not working anymore. And we have to yeah. be open to change, which is I tough get, and hard. Yeah. So many people who deal with SIBO who like go down these roads of restrictive diets. And I don't know if you did SCD, the uh, specific carbohydrate diet because of SIBO, but it is one of the ones that a lot of SIBO people do. I have ulcerative colitis. And so uh, that's yeah. why I had, I mean, I was, you know, you get to that point where you're like willing to do anything yeah, and you're totally. willing to at least try anything. And I find for me, my like flares and stuff with it are very emotionally connected Absolutely. for sure. And also just if I'm off in any way, for me, it's really connected to sleep, which is interesting, mm. you know, and my husband, for example, he does really well with routine and he's like someone that he could give up an extra hour or two of sleep to exercise in the morning. And that like, if he doesn't do that, he feels off kilter. But if mm. I did that and I skipped that extra one, two or three hours of sleep, I'm like off kilter for three days. And my like body starts flaring and acting up. Like I, I need the sleep more. And so, yeah. and it took me a while to know that. And obviously as a working parent of two, you don't often get the sleep that you yeah. need, but I've realized that sleep for me and actually for a lot of people, because I have to say it's one of the key sort of necessities of mental health and physical health is good quality sleep. But for me, particularly, it it's something that I can't look at anymore as a luxury. Like it's yeah. actually, I need it to survive properly. <laughs> I'm the exact same way. But I think, you know, it's like, it's the autoimmune personality. It's, I mean, so much of it comes down to that and just being gentle. I think like we autoimmune types just need gentle everything, like gentle yes. exercise, gentle approach to diets. Like I, I mean, even though a lot of these extreme diets are recommended for colitis specifically and like a lot of autoimmune diseases, I don't know. I just, I do agree with you that it all, like the flares are usually from stress and like yes. emotional trauma of some sort. Yes. And so, you know, while you can, if you have a healthy relationship to it, like use diet as a crutch to lean on during those times. If, you know, that's something that makes you feel like you're doing your best, then do it. But otherwise, I don't know. I think taking, sleeping, taking care of our mindset in every way possible is just like, should be top of the list for everyone. And I also want to just put out there that for a long time, you know, this is obviously what I do for a living and I work with stress and anxiety and worry and all these things. And and for a long time, I beat myself up and pressured myself that like I caused my autoimmune yeah. um, diagnosis and disease because I was not capable of managing my stress since there's so much, since I really truly believe that the two were together, but that's not true. So yeah. that's something that I was born with and that many of us were born with. There is a genetic component to it. We can't really figure out what mine is, but it's part of my body and it's part of my makeup and it could be environmental and there could be so many things. We don't exactly know yet, but 
it, it's and it not is this, so many things. It's it is never so many one things. thing. It's like this perfect storm, but not exactly. perfect. We don't like it. But um, but the point is that I think like it took me a while to to realize that too. That yes, managing my stress and my sleep levels and and those types of things were really important. But also at the same time, recognizing that just by having stress, stress is a normal response to life that we all have. And you can listen to the very first episode of Looking Up on season one to talk about stress and how normal it is and we all experience it is not the reason. We don't cause all these things in ourselves just because we have stress and we are not people that are are incapable of dealing with it. And those are not our ways to show ourselves that that we just couldn't hack it. And that's just not yeah. true. So anyway, that was just, sorry, that little tidbit out there. But I, these are, it's so interesting. I have a very paralleled experience. And I think that I've not, I haven't really talked a lot about my autoimmune experience. And I don't think a lot of people know that, that I have ulcerative colitis. And I know I didn't know that. Yeah. I just haven't. And it's not for any reason. It just is, it's interesting. I don't necessarily, I don't feel like it's part of my identity so much. Mm. You know, sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't, but I do understand through conversations like this, how actually it has totally shaped my framework and and sort of my growth and resiliency over the past like eight years. Yeah. And so talking about it more, I it's going to be um, something I'm doing this year. Yeah. Just well, I think, I don't know. I think even there you have to find the happy medium. I've just been recently working with a medical hypnotherapist and it was something that she pointed out to me that I had never really thought about. Um, and we're working on stuff around my Hashimoto's and like, you know, some of my inflammatory... <laughs> prone, you know, bodily functions. But um, she was like, it's so funny, you know, the way that you talk about Hashimoto's and obviously like I do for work, like I kind of have to a certain extent, but she's like, you know, it's so possessive, like my Hashimoto's, my autoimmune disease, you know, like those terms, like just the my versus the the, it's really impactful. And if you're doing that day in, day out and, you know, a disease becomes your identity, like, you know, there's a lot going on in the subconscious that can make that a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's something I'm really aware of now. Absolutely. And so I think so important to understand all the facets of our identity, but something that you bring up that, that I talk about a lot is this idea of empowering versus disempowering language. And I think oftentimes we forget how important the words that we say really are and the story of our own lives that we're telling. And I think it just goes kind of back to that idea that every single day is a new day. And it's okay if you've been speaking one way and you realize it or you've come to some understanding of like, oh my gosh, I've been making this my whole identity for X amount of years. Like that's okay. Tomorrow is a new day that you can start not doing that. And it doesn't mean you have to beat yourself over uh, the head about it. Yeah. It's so funny, especially like I was a writer first and probably like a chef food person second. And it's really fascinating now in the age of social media and what you said before about certain people who become the voice of veganism and then feel like it's like such a shameful thing to have to admit you're eating meat. Like I feel like more and more now, even people who don't have a huge platform or whatever are narrating their lives. Like, I don't know, in in interesting ways and maybe like ways that it wasn't the norm to do before we had like every single person had a platform to like right. skew their life onto. And me, I've been doing it obviously in a more conscious way because I am literally narrating my life in a book and trying to figure out like how to put the arc in there and all that. But, you know, I guess now I'm on the other side of that. I'm trying to think going forward, like, you know, 
maybe I don't want, not that I don't want to do this work anymore, but maybe I don't want, you know, that to just be like the center of my life is like being like the SIBO girl, the Hashimoto's girl. And I never set out to be, I just wanted to create resources for people in places that like I really felt were lacking for my own experience. But yeah, yeah, you caught me in like, you know, a transitional time that I'm thinking harder about some of these things. And also, I mean, just in saying that, I kind of wrote this whole thing when I talked about SIBO about like transformational stories and how dangerous they are. And I really was thinking about that as I was writing the wellness project. You know, I don't want my like ending of this year to have to be some sort of finish line. Like this is life. Like I have not, I don't have it all together. Like who am I kidding? I don't want to set myself up for like some sort of, if I have some sort of setback, I'm going to be like embarrassed to tell people. Cause like that's life, that's autoimmune disease. Like, hello, like we're always going to have flares and setbacks. So yeah, that was just something I was always conscious of. And I'm glad, I'm glad I had that mindset because yeah, SIBO is definitely a setback, but also, you know, unleash this whole new understanding of the body. Like seriously, I thought I understood gut health when I researched it for my second book. And what I've learned since then, I'm like, oh my God, I had no idea. Just scratch the surface. What are like the two or three biggest sort of aha moments that you learned about gut health that you didn't yeah, know before? It sounds so silly, but it's as basic as, you know, I think in the wellness space, people throw around the language a little bit too, like it can be a little bit too layman. Like we talk about good gut bacteria, but in reality, like the gut is not synonymous with the large intestine. It like refers to like the entire digestive system. And in reality, like the majority of your gut bacteria is in your large intestine. And that's not something I ever understood. And I don't know if we said it before, but SIBO stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And I didn't really realize that, you know, for those of us who are just paying attention to microbiome scientists who are, you know, saying how depleted our microbiome is, our gut microbiome, and how much we need to be like growing and fostering these species for a lot of people who maybe had damaged guts to begin with or who have inflammatory prone conditions. like Which by do. the way is so many people and people yeah. that don't even know that about themselves. Because oftentimes it's not really something, some of the like effects from it are just things that seem masked by other things. Like yeah. you would never know really. Yeah. Anxiety, depression, brain fog. Like it's like the symptom list can overlap with so many things. Yeah. You know, and isn't it that taking probiotics or at least specific types of probiotics is not actually recommended for people that have no, right? (laughs) It's like everything you're doing to like, and everything I was doing because of the wellness project to like feed my gut was just fanning the flames of my SIBO. So essentially why you get an overgrowth in your small intestine is because of basic mechanics in your digestive system that have to break down. And a lot of them break down because again, of like various inflammatory dysfunction, but it's not necessarily a matter of like good versus bad bacteria, though bad bacteria can play a role in it. It's just in the wrong place. So it's too far up the digestive tract. And in the small intestines, you're really not supposed to have very much bacteria because it's where you absorb your nutrients. So if there are bacteria there, they're going to be competing for those food sources. And when they eat your food and they release gas, it just gets trapped because it's not as close to an exit ramp. So actually one of my symptoms that I feel is very SIBO-y was I was burping all the time. Mm. And I think it's, you know, the gas was just trying to find a way out and it can come out both ways. But I I find a lot of people write in to me who are like, oh my God, the burping. So yeah, that was an interesting symptom. But if you think about it, yeah, I mean, the bloat that you get with SIBO is not like period bloating. It's like 
kind of under your ribs and it's immediately after you eat because it's a direct result of the bacteria eating that meal as well. So if you it's have so something- interesting. I like, I yeah. didn't get any of the sort of SIBO sort of side effects or whatever you want to call them. Um, and so I would have never known. But one thing I did always have, and it's gone away completely. I don't know, maybe, I don't know if you like grow out or, or just it goes away or I don't know what it yeah. is and then comes back. But for a long time in like my late teens, I, every time I would eat, I literally would have to unbutton my like buttons because mm. my stomach would get like bloated and kind of like yeah. hard. And then it would go away after a couple hours. But like, that was my one big symptom. I mean, I have ulcerative colitis, but the other stuff, like I never had like any of, I never had like any of the other SIBO symptoms, but that made so much sense to me if that was one of them. Cause I was like, why am I always after every meal? I was like, it was like a big joke. I'd be like, okay, I'm unbuttoning my buttons under the table right now. Yeah. Um, it was no, just I identify with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I relate. It made wearing jeans like really annoying. Oh yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, no, that's like kind of the hallmark of of SIBO. It's so interesting because it really brings us back to this idea that there is no one size fits all Mm -hmm. prescription. And I think we have to be really alert and mindful and intentional when we are in this world right now of being inundated and sort of thrown over the head with wellness tips and tools from every single person, like you said, that has a platform. And it's like this sort of general idea that trends go through waves. And one of the biggest trends over the last half decade is obviously probiotics. And it kind of became something that was, I know all my friends and my friends' moms when I was in high school that were like really into health and sort of self-improvement when it wasn't like cool, they were all taking like acidophilus. I just remember that word because I thought it was so funny, but like nobody else was like, it wasn't like a thing. And now I feel like everybody, like it's sort of like, you know, we should practice gratitude and um, (laughs) manifest and have probiotics. But the thing is for a lot of people that does work and that does help, but we, the point of it is, it's not that it's, it's all bad or it's all good. It's that we really have to get to know our own bodies and research what really is good for us or not, because some of the things that you think you're doing because Instagram's telling you to, or even some really great, you know, experts are telling you to that you trust and believe might actually be harming your body because it doesn't work for you. Like probiotics, for example. Yeah. No. And the gut is such, yeah, the gut's a finicky beast. And it's not to say, as you said before, like we're changing constantly, the gut changes quickly and constantly. It's not to say that you can't take probiotics ever. I take probiotics now because I've you know, slowly tried to uh, fix some of the root causes for why I was getting SIBO so that I know that those probiotics are not like pulling off the exit ramp and just like hanging out in my small intestines and like proliferating there. But it's interesting. Like, I feel like one of the reasons why I wrote both of my books is just because the way that the publishing world works is that it's doctors are rewarded for coming up with these singular plans that have huge promises in like a silver bullet kind of way that if you just do this exact plan for 21 days or however- 21 days to blah, blah, blah. And by the way, you've heard me say it before, but that basis of 21 days to building a new habit is actually not based on anything scientific. (laughs) The number 21 is not based on anything scientific. It was a huge misunderstanding. There's a big story on that, but it actually takes closer to 66 days. There is Mm -hmm. no specific day for people. 
Um, everyone has a different amount of days for being able to build that new habit. But on average, it takes about 66. So of course, if you do something for 21 days, like you said, even if you do something for a week, it can make your body feel better. And there's no harm in that. But to make that claim or to ride that sort of wagon of everything is just like 21 days to blow. Like everything has become a gimmick. Yeah. Basically. Or it's exactly like a, a big a big promise in a box or a and gift. It's because it's rewarded. I would have sold more books right. had I done that plan, but I didn't want to. And, you know, with the SIBO stuff, it's like, I'm not a doctor, but I think it's actually a good thing because I interviewed over like 50 experts for this book and was able to kind of like synthesize all the advice. And it's not a roadmap per se that's like singular. It's a roadmap of like, here, here's literally the full map, like choose your own path because unfortunately, like you may have to take several to get to your destination. Like SIBO is just kind of a tricky, tough, chronic condition. And like, I'd say gut health in general falls under that mm-hmm. category. And if you are doing something, like you said, like, you know, crushing fermented foods because someone told you to and you feel miserable every time, like I did back in the fall of 2017, you should just take a step back and, you know, dig a little bit further. Or if you don't like making your own yogurt, don't make your own yogurt if it's killing you. buy it. It's fine. If it feels good for you. (laughs) And even if it's challenging and it takes time, you don't like it, but it's actually proving to be effective, then maybe you should keep trying to do it. But yeah, exactly. If it makes you miserable. Well, I... It's so interesting. I never really thought about how much I was going to relate to this to this conversation. So that's pretty cool. Right. But um, <laughs> to close up, I just have a last question for you. And that is, what are you most optimistic about and what is looking up for you? Oh, man. Oh, so many things. But I actually, you know... It's been interesting, sorry to tie this back to my work because I'm like just so focused on it right now, but it's been interesting writing about a topic that is really in like the early nascency of research. So there's a lot of questions around SIBO and about gut health in general that are just like big question marks. And we don't really know like what the right answer is. There's tons of clinicians like who, you know, have the data in their own practices to make some guesses and to see what works. But there is exciting new research coming out. And there are like facts in my book that are outdated now because new research has come out. And I'm actually really optimistic about that. I think that's an incredible thing. Is, um, how common is SIBO? So it's said that 60% of all IBS cases are actually being caused by SIBO. And like SIBO is just to clarify, not like a disease in and of itself. It's similar to IBS, just a sign that something has gone wrong in the digestive tract. But because, you know, more research has been done specifically into this condition. Like now we do have some answers into what those, you know, things are that have gone wrong. And there's still some like kind of chicken or the egg questions, like autoimmune diseases. There's a whole long list that's like a risk factor for SIBO. And we don't quite understand why per se, but, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get closer to answering that question. But yes, yeah, 60% of all IBS cases is a lot of people. That's like 25 million people. Yes, absolutely. Again, back to just listening to our bodies. And, and I think it's this idea that I talk a lot about is this idea of intuition. And mm. we are sort of in this time where there's so much information, it's information overload, and yes. we have access to so much of it in such a quick amount of time, like in seconds, that it's like going down the cereal aisle and having a hundred different types of cereal. It makes it really hard for you to choose one. It's yeah. paralysis. And so I think that this time is so interesting because we have so much access, which is a positive thing sometimes, yeah. but at the same time, it can it can be so overwhelming and we're sort of losing the relationship to our own intuition. And mm-hmm. I think 
being able, which is, which is interesting because as we all know, we call our intuition, our gut. So mm-hmm. back to the gut, but it's a two-way um, really, street. it's a two way street. And so just that it's, this conversation has really made me like reiterate to myself how important it is to, to actually just spend more time going inside and figuring out what works and what doesn't work for me personally, rather than just listen to all the stuff that's being thrown at us all the time that are sort of promising us and telling us what we need without us actually even consenting to it. But anyway, to end off this conversation, that was highly informative. I'm going to pick a card for you from my Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards. And it will be sort of your homework for the rest of the day. This podcast came with homework. Okay. It's great. At random, this is your card. Okay. Just for today, instead of making a to-do list, make a ta-da list. Oh, this is one of my favorite cards. Mm. Or better yet, an I did it list. Jot down things you already did. It's amazing how accomplished you already are and the day isn't even over. This is one of my favorite cards. And it kind of brings (laughs) us back to the back to the start where we talked about that idea of taking action and and building self-mastery by being able to just do small things every day and how powerful that is. So anyway, thank you so much for being on Looking Up. Thank you. I'm going to go so make my to to-do list. Yes, make your to-do <laughs> list. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.com. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Sade by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.